So welcome to uh, another beautiful class uh, on, the, on the Rebbe's teachings. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the theme of, the, of, uh, of this class is about the idea of compassion. Uh, in fact, Joseph, Yosef, who was uh, the, the, the brother who was hated by his brothers, he was sold into slavery, went through a harrowing life uh, from the age of 17. Uh, he was a slave and he was accused of a crime he never committed. He spent 12 years in prison. And then miraculously, when he was 30 years old, he, uh, he vaulted to the pinnacle of power. He became the viceroy of Egypt. He became solely responsible for the Egyptian economy, which by extension became like uh, the, you know, the anchor of the, of the economy of the, of, a, of the entire civilization at the time. And in this week's parasha, we learn how Yosef reveals himself to his brothers. He uh, forgives them for the terrible sin that they did. He tells them, don't worry, you were not the ones that sent me down to Egypt. It was God who sent me down here. The reason I was sent there was in order that I should prepare civilization and especially the family for these seven years of, of hunger um, for this famine. And so there's no reason to have any guilt feelings and to beat yourself up about it. It was God through and through. And that's the way I view it. And that's the way you should view it. Just bring father down to Egypt. And here's a place where I will be able to support you for the next five years of famine. And sure enough, Yaakov and his sons, they come down to Egypt, the entire family of 70 uh, descendants of Yaakov, they come to Egypt. And then here begins the 210-year-long saga of the Jewish people uh, in Egyptian exile. But for those first few years during the lifetime of Yaakov and in general during the lifetime of Yosef, the Jewish people had a fairly uh, good existence in, uh, in Egypt. And at the final part of our parsha, the Torah explains to us how exactly Yosef dealt with the land of Egypt during the time of famine, how he supported them. Uh, they did not get freebies. It wasn't, it wasn't like uh, all of a sudden there was a famine and now Yosef is here to provide all of the food for them. Uh, in fact, they had to pay for the food. And when the money ran out, um, he, uh, he said, okay, so now sell me your property. Uh, no, first, first he, he had them sell uh, their livestock all of their animals. Then once that, once the government owned all of the animals, so then he said, okay, sell me your property. Um, and then he owned all of their property. And finally they said, we have nothing else. And so he said, okay, uh, now you're, you are going to be slaves to the state in order to receive food. So essentially Yosef uh, took control over the entire population of Egypt. Besides for two classes of people. The first class was his family. The Torah tells us that he settled them in Goshen in uh, the best part of the land, according, based on Pharaoh's instructions, he sold them in Goshen, and he provided them food without a problem. They did not have to sell themselves to the state in order to receive food. And the Kohanim, the Egyptian priests, um, the, you know, the, 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 the priests that would teach the Egyptians how to be good heathens, how to serve idols, um, those who were promoting the very silly and debased and depraved uh, ideas of Egypt, they were also exempt. As the clergy of Egypt, they were exempt from paying for their food. They received a stipend, and therefore they were able to keep their, their property, their money, their livestock, and everything. So we see here that Yosef has a tremendous amount of uh, compassion and tolerance not just compassion and tolerance for his own brothers who sold him into slavery. That's a different type of story. But we see also that he has a very high level of tolerance for people that were the antithesis of everything that Yosef stood for. Yosef was a descendant of Avram. He was a student of his father, Yaakov. Yosef uh, obviously felt that anything that had to do with idolatry was the, the complete opposite of morality and ethics and, and anything that is good and noble and proper of this world. The, the biggest scour, scourge of, 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 of humanity is the fact that they serve idols. And yet, the class of Egyptians that received an exemption from paying for their food was specifically the class that perpetuated the, the, the Egyptian uh, corruption. Um, and, they, and they made like a, a spiritual pursuit out of it. The, the Egyptian clergy. So what is this all about? Where did he learn this idea of being so compassionate. 
So let's let's go to uh, page number two in the handout, part number one. Let's just read about uh, Yosef's kindness to his family and to the priests. And Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them an estate in the best part of the land in the Ramses region, as Pharaoh had commanded. Yosef provided all the needs of his father, his brothers, and all his father's family down to the very youngest. All right, that's one class that is being provided everything free of charge. Source number two. After the Torah describes how basically now he owns all the livestock, all the land and everything, the only land he did not buy up was that of the Kohanim, the priesthood, since the Kohanim, the Egyptian Kohanim, had an allotment from Pharaoh. They ate the allotment that Pharaoh gave them and did not have to sell their lands. Rashi explains that the Kohanim, meaning the priests, the word Kohen always refers to a servant of a deity, except those that refer to high rank, as in Kohen Midian, the chief of Midian, or Kohen On, the chief of On. So Kohen could either mean someone who serves in a, a clergy capacity, someone who serves as a priest to a deity, or someone who is a chief of, of a nation, of a tribe, or something like that. The Kohanim had an allotment, an allotted portion of bread per day. Now, this teaching that we're going to be learning was not said on Parshat Vayigash. It, was, it, it didn't happen um, on an anniversary on this week. It was said on Simchas Torah. The, what's the connection of Simchas Torah to Yosef? On Simchas Torah, we read the final portion of the Torah where Moshe is blessing the Jewish people. He's blessing all of the tribes. And every tribe received a, a blessing that was unique to them. Um, uh, unique to them as a tribe, unique to them as descendants of a specific son of Yaakov, and unique to them as to their purpose in the world and their mission uh, that they are meant to accomplish in the land of Israel and in exile for all time. So um, one of the blessings is to the tribe of Yosef. Let me read that, I believe, on, on the third, that's like the third portion of, uh, of Azot Bracha. So apparently that year, some Kostara was on a Tuesday or on a Monday, um, apparently it was on a Tuesday and uh, and uh, the Rebbe spoke about this idea so let, let's go let's go straight to it P uh, page number three the third portion of Prashat Vizot Abracha recounts the blessing of Moses to the tribe of Yosef and of Yosef he said his land shall be blessed by God with the sweetness of the heavens dew and with the waters that lie below one of the unique elements of this blessing is that it incorporates a mention of heaven, representing spirituality, along with a mention of below, representing a lower material reality. This blessing clearly suits Yosef, just as earlier in the Torah, when Yaakov blessed his 12 sons, the Torah says that each blessing suited the unique spiritual character of the son. This we're going to learn in next week's parasha, the blessings of Yaakov to his sons. He blessed them each according to their blessing. Why did it suit Yosef? What's so unique about Yosef that it is appropriate that his blessing should incorporate heaven and earth? Because on the one hand, he sustained and supported Yaakov and his children. When they were in Canaan, Yaakov heard that food was available in Egypt and sent the sons to procure provisions for the family. And later, when the entire family came down to Egypt, he continued to support them. As the Torah says, Yosef provided all the needs of his father, his brothers, and all his father's family. This sustenance is represented in the word heaven, the spiritual element of his blessing. Yosef did the most elevated spiritual thing possible in history, and that is to save the Abrahamic lineage, literally from starvation. The family of Abraham was in danger of extinction. If they're not going to have food, you don't eat, you die. And so Yosef, by providing for them, he, he allowed them to survive and allowed for the rest of history to play out with the, with, with the children of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov serving as God's ambassadors to the world. So on the one hand, at the time that Yosef was viceroy of Egypt and he was providing for the world, he was providing for the most elevated and spiritual family in existence. So that's a heavenly type of thing. At the same time, Yosef was the primary provider for the entire Egypt. Egyptian society was considered the most depraved of its time. Torah calls it the nakedness of the land. They were the polar opposite of Yosef, who was called Yosef the righteous for protecting his covenant. I just want to give a little, you know, there are very few people in history that are called the tzaddik. 
There is, for example, Mordechai. Mordechai is called Mordechai the Tzaddik, the righteous one. And Yosef is called Yosef the Tzaddik. Why did he earn this name, this title? So two weeks ago, in the parasha of Vayeshev, we learned about Yosef who was sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery. He's purchased by Potiphar. And Potiphar, is, and, and now he, you know, he becomes the, the head of the household. He's, he's basically the general manager of the entire house. And Potiphar's wife wants to have an affair with Yosef. Now, let's put ourselves for a moment in Yosef's shoes. Yosef was sold by his own brothers. His father doesn't know that he's alive. There's no one in the world that it cares for him because anyone that knows that anyone that cares for him thinks he's dead. And anyone that knows that he's alive certainly doesn't care for him because they were the ones that sold. So Yosef is now in a foreign land without any family and there's no one around. And it, it, the, 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 how do you say, the, the wife of Potiphar, who is demanding that he should have an affair with her, he has everything to lose by rejecting her. He has everything to lose by rejecting her and everything to gain by appeasing her, by going along with it. And yet, Yosef resists. Even when it came to a point where she was forcing him, he ran away. This is the height of righteousness. There is no one around, no one that cares. And on the contrary, you have every reason in the book to reject all that is right and good because those that represent morality and ethics, they were the ones that sold you. Your father, whom you love so much and he loves you so much, he was the one that sent you into the lion's den. He sent you to the brothers. He could have spun a web of, of uh, not just not conspiracy, he could have spun a web that would convince him that, you know what? The legacy of Abraham is, is, is uh, there's no point in keeping it because the fact that I'm here is only a result of the descendants of Abraham. I can find you a hundred different reasons why you should basically say, look, if I'm here and I'm alone, I might as well make the best of it. I might as well, you know, in order to advance, in order to protect my position, this is what I have to do. But Yosef was permeated with the awareness that God is even in Egypt. And that God is watching him even over there in Potiphar's home. And he resisted one of the greatest challenges. And therefore he was called Yosef Atzad. So Yosef was someone who was permeated with the awareness of God to such a degree that even in Egypt he would not give in to the corrupt and depraved uh, society. And here, what is he doing? He is the one that is providing for this very society that is the polar opposite of him. Nonetheless, I'll continue here in the, the third paragraph on the page. Nonetheless, Joseph sustained Egypt as well. He even supported the priests of Egypt and made an effort to maintain their dignity. They were not asked to sell their land. Notwithstanding the fact that they represented everything Joseph despised. This is represented in the below in Joseph's blessing. When in, in the blessing to Joseph, so there's the idea of the, the dew of the heavens and also of the water that lies below, that Yosef incorporates the idea of the most intense spirituality and also the lowest and most mundane elements of this world. And this is represented by the fact that Yosef provided for this morally corrupt uh, society of Egypt and especially the priesthood of Egypt. Now this poses the question, who taught Yosef to behave in this manner? Where does, what is the source for this behavior that even to a person who represents everything that is wrong about society, to have such tolerance for them, compassion for them, and ensure that they should also have what to eat and in a dignified manner? So like everything, where do we take our cue from God? In the very, very beginning of creation, we find a very similar situation. God created the world. He brought Adam and Eve into this world. And within three hours, they messed up. Within three hours of being created by God, living in paradise, they were told one thing, do not eat from the tree of knowledge. And they messed up. There was only one mitzvah, and they missed out on keeping that mitzvah just for the several hours that they needed to keep that mitzvah. Let's go to source number three. God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch it. God gave the man a commandment to saying, 
You may definitely eat from every tree of the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The woman saw that the tree, we're skipping here a little bit, the woman saw that the tree was good to eat and desirable to the eyes. Obviously, the serpent was the one that was enticing her to do so, and that the tree was attractive as a means to gain intelligence. She took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. And as we learn, uh, especially in the, the deeper uh, dimensions of the Torah, this was not simply a crime of eating something that doesn't belong to you. This was the crime of all crimes. This was the first sin that opened up the path for sin for the entire world. This opened up the Pandora's box. This opened up the ability for death in this world, the necessity for death in the world. What happened by them eating from this tree was, 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 was like, it wasn't even an earthquake. It was just a complete combustion of, of, uh, of the world. Everything just combusted. Everything was just, a, a lot of garbage was, was introduced to the world as a result. And we're suffering from it until today. How did God react? Source number four. They heard God's voice moving about in the garden with the wind of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. God called to man and said, where are you? Now, obviously God knows where he is. So what was the purpose of him saying, hey, Adam, where are you? So Rashi explains, he knew where Adam was. It was only to engage in conversation with him so that he is not frightened to answer if he would have punished him suddenly. Let's continue on the next page, on page 5, on the top from Gur Aryeh, which is a commentary on Rashi, a commentary on the commentary. He, said, he explains to engage him in conversation, meaning God did so for Adam's benefit. If Adam is not frightened, he might admit that he sinned and then repent. So when, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, this, this epic sin that was the first and, 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 the, and, the, and the source of all sin, God did not move immediately to strike him. He did not punish him immediately. In fact, he wanted to start a friendly conversation. And the reason why he didn't come with this big, loud bang and say, whoa, you really messed up. You know, how, uh, let's say you're playing one of these games, and when you mess up, there's like a big, loud noise, like, you know, this explosion. Like, oh, you, you know, like you're terrible. You messed up. God didn't do that. God allowed him to mess up and then started to approach him very, very softly. Where are you? He started a conversation. Why? He wanted to give Adam the opportunity to admit to his mistake and to do teshuva, to repent. Not only that, even after Adam did not repent, and he tried to uh, excuse himself out of it. God did not punish him immediately. The fact that the Torah tells us that God allowed him to remain in the Garden of Eden throughout Shabbat. He spent another close to 30 hours in the Garden of Eden. He was not banished immediately. God provided him with clothing. That shows him a very high level of tolerance for a man like Adam who had just introduced sin into the world. Source number five, this is from the Talmud. And Rabbi Chama, son of Rabbi Hanina, says, What is the meaning of the, words, of the verse, walk after the Lord your God? Is it possible to follow the divine presence? Doesn't the verse say the Lord your God is a devouring fire? How can a person walk together with fire? How could you connect yourself to fire? Rather, one should follow God's example. Just as he clothes the naked, as it is written, God made leather garments for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them, so too should you clothe the naked. So the Talmud is telling us that we have to learn from the story of Adam and Eve, the way God reacted to that story. We have to learn a lesson in our own lives. The clear lesson that the Talmud tells us is that right afterwards, when they noticed, they realized, they became conscious of their nakedness, God provided them with clothing. So therefore you have to go out there and provide clothing for those that don't have clothing of their own. But there's actually a deeper lesson that we can learn here by understanding the general context of God's reaction to Adam's sin, which can teach us a tremendous lesson in the extent that we must go to show compassion and tolerance to those that may be the complete polar opposite 
of what we stand for, for what we believe, and what we believe to be true. So let's continue on page number six, continuing in the Rebbe's talk. God's tolerance for Adam and Eve. The answer can be found in the teaching of our sages, the righteous resemble their creator. We find that God himself conducted himself in the exact same manner as Yosef did, you know, 2,000 years later with the priests of, 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 of Egypt. In the Torah portion of Bereshis, which, by the way, on Simcha's Torah, we start to read the, the portion of Bereshis. So the Rebbe is connecting the final portion of Zeus Abracha, which talks about Yosef, and connects the, you know, the, the height of spirituality and the depth of, of the mundaneness of dealing with the Egyptians, connecting it to the first portion of the Torah, which is the story of Adam and Eve. God made leather garments for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Our sages note that the Torah practically begins by telling us about God's act of kindness and explain that we must follow God's lead. Just as he clothes the naked, you should clothe the naked, because a person should always seek to emulate God's behavior. Now, Beratius describes Adam's life in the Garden of Eden, both before the sin of the Tree of Knowledge, and afterwards, before he was expelled, as the Torah relates later on. There's a lot going on. Even after Adam sinned, while he is still in the Garden of Eden. Notably, Adam lived in the Garden of Eden not only before the sin, but even after the sin of partaking of the forbidden fruit. God speaks of banishing him only later on, and only later carries out his decision. And as uh, the Talmud clearly states, that it was at least 30 hours later, after the conclusion of Shabbat. It is surprising that he wasn't immediately expelled. It would have seemed appropriate had he been chased out of the garden as an immediate consequence for partaking of the forbidden fruit. As a result, eating from that forbidden fruit was the greatest way of him basically saying, God, I don't care about you. Now, when you're in someone's house and you do something, you break the chandelier, you break a glass, you do something that, that insults the owner of the house, you know what they're going to do. They're going to call the police and send you out right away. If you're in a bar and you start to make a ruckus, they call the, 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 the bouncer and he bounces you out. You're done. Here, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They're in God's garden. God told them one thing. Don't, don't eat from that tree. And they go and they eat from it barely three hours after they were created. Why didn't God bounce them immediately? This is an important point. Adam transgressed God's will, and the world's spiritual state severely deteriorated. However, God didn't punish him immediately. Instead, he waited, keeping Adam in the garden, where he was surrounded by the greatest luxuries the world had to offer. The luxuries that we see as reward were just commonplace realities for Adam in the garden. Then, God began a conversation with him, where are you, so that he could catch himself and bring himself to repent. Moreover, God made them clothing and dressed them, which was the first step in helping them correct the mistake of the sin, that they should have some more, uh, that they should be more modest, etc. So even before punishing them, he is giving them the tools that they need in order to fix up what they messed up. Think about it. Despite the terrible sin he just committed, especially taking into account that he was God's personal handiwork, that he was living in the Garden of Eden, and that if he would only contain himself for three hours, he would be permitted to eat of the fruit. Nevertheless, God did an act of kindness. He dressed the very individual who had just created the potential of sinning for eternity. Now, that would make you think that, wow, Adam is like the personification of everything wrong with humanity. So the Rebbe paused, we're continuing on page 7. And so this is just describing how the Rebbe you know, said this. The Rebbe paused for a moment and commented, we shouldn't talk negatively about Adam. In fact, there is an argument whether Mashiach will be greater than him or not. So we're talking here about a person that even after he sinned, it's very possible that he, that he will still be the greatest human being that ever lived. And even Mashiach is going to uh, redeem the world and, 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 and bring, bring about an era of, of world peace, which is a tremendous accomplishment. And that's going to be basically the perfection of humanity. Even Mashiach might not be as great and perfect as Adam, right? But the fact remains that Adam was the one who introduced sin to humanity. He is the cause for all of the problems that we have today. And yet, how did God react to him? 
Eventually he was banished. Eventually he was thrown out of the, out of the Garden of Eden. But it wasn't immediate. God want, he wanted to engage him in a way that would give him the opportunity to do teshuva immediately. The Rebbe will continue at this point. The point is, although punishment is a direct outcome of sin, and therefore seemingly it should follow the sin immediately, nevertheless God waits and gives an opening for repentance. Because the individual might repent in a manner which not only approves the sin altogether, but even transforms the sin into a merit. And then, not only won't he be banished from the Garden of Eden, his garden will be enhanced. So the Rebbe takes it a step further and says that God did not want to immediately punish him. God wanted to give him an opportunity to repent, not just because God wanted to settle a score with him. God wanted to allow him to use out this mistake, to use out this fault as a stepping stone for greater heights. God was not just giving him a chance. God was giving him a tremendous opportunity by delaying his expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Now that is, a, that is a remarkable, remarkable show of tolerance for someone who had just violated the only mitzvah that he had. This occurrence, described in the Torah portion of Horatius, taught Yosef that regardless of a person's moral or spiritual state, there is always reason to have patience and await a transformation. And this served as a guide for his behavior in Egypt. Even the priests of Pharaoh, the greatest symbol of Egypt's depravity, you never know what could become of them. Proof of the matter can be brought from Yitro, who served as a minister to Pharaoh and as a Midianite priest, and was ultimately the source of an entirely new Torah portion. His name Yitro means addition, representing his addition to the Torah of Moses. This reflects the Talmud's teaching that penitents have an advantage over those who were born righteous. Later on in the Torah, we learn about how Yitro, who was Moshe's father-in-law, ultimately joined the Jewish people. And although he was a convert, and although he, his past was a very difficult one, you know, he was, he was from Pharaoh's inner circle. He was a priest of every idol, every deity in the world. And ultimately, many, many years later in life, that's when he made a complete turnaround. And he came to the Jewish people in the desert. And he said, Now I know that God is the only God. In fact, there is an expression in the Zohar that the Torah could only be given after Yitro came to the Jewish people. Only after he who represents the worst of the worst, the, the priesthood of idolatry, only when he came, that's when everything was able to happen. That's when Torah was able to come to the Jewish people, Sinai, etc. So what do we see here? If someone would look at Yitro while he was at the height of his career as a priest of Midian, a priest in Egypt, etc., they would think, this guy, like, write him off the books. He's evil. He's terrible. He's the personification of everything heathen. No. Have patience. Be tolerant. Because ultimately something, you know, you, ne you never know what's going to happen. You never, never write someone off. And this is what, and this, this was the idea of Yosef. That, that, he, that he, was, he allowed for the priests to retain their dignity, even though they were the worst of the worst. They were the worst that Egypt had to offer. Why? Because God did the same for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is also the meaning of Joseph's blessing. His land shall be blessed by God with the sweetness of the heaven's dew and with the waters that lie below. Joseph's task is to bring blessing even into the lowest spiritual depths, even to the priests of Egypt, because even they can become holy. This is the power of Joseph, about whom it is written, the generous man is blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. So this is about Yosef. This is about God 5,781 years ago. It's a story in the Bible. So what does that have to do with us? Let's continue on page 8. As in every Torah matter, this story has an eternal lesson. The story of Yosef is relevant not only to Yosef in his day, but also to every single person 
in every place and in every generation, including Simchas Torah 1964 in Brooklyn. And so we're learning it today, so we could say including the 5th of Tavis, December 20th, 2021, 2020, I'm sorry, 2020 here in El Paso, Texas, while we're on Zoom. Some people do not have the patience to deal with others. I did everything that was within my power, they say, but didn't manage to make a major impact on the state of Judaism. It would be better if I focus on my own spiritual growth. Some people say, you know what? Before I go into a community where there's no proper Jewish infrastructure, where there's no Torah classes, there's no proper Torah school, there's no kosher, there's no anything, I'm going to make a plan. I'm ready to invest five years of my life into making an oasis of Judaism in a desert. And they have a plan, I'm going to come, and in two months I'm going to convince 10 people to come, and there's going to be a minion, and then I'm going to start a school. You have this whole plan figured out. New, and you come there, and you start to work at this, and five years later, you feel that you've barely moved the needle on the situation of Judaism in this community. So what's a person going to say? Hey, <laughs> five years of my life that I invested in, in trying to influence an entire community and try to, to make something happen, and I wasn't able to accomplish anything. You know what? This community doesn't deserve me. And I'm going to go on to another community or go back to, to the yeshiva that I came from, whatever it is. Uh, you can have the same idea as, uh, let's say, someone meets someone who, you know, does not learn Torah, doesn't do mitzvahs, is not very involved in Jewish life, and they start to invite them for a Shabbos meal, and they start to invite them to a class and things like that. And for a full year, they're texting them and sending them phone calls and invitations. No response. And, you know, and, and what could the, what's the easy reaction? Why am I wasting time with this person? Why am I even trying to encourage them? Yeah, they came to my house for a Shabbos meal, and they came to a program, and this and that. But uh, it's not really making them, it's not, it's not really having an impact. They haven't really changed their lives, their life. So you could say, okay, why, why am I even doing this? This person doesn't deserve my attention. This person does not deserve my energy. Either way, they claim. Our sages declare that one's own life comes first. This is true even concerning people who are considered your spiritual equal. How much more so regarding people who are considered mere creations, meaning that their only redeeming quality is that God created them. So it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying, look, if this person is receptive to my energy, receptive to my attention, okay, I'll continue to give, I'll continue... But if, if I don't see that I'm, I'm making an impact, I don't see that things are changing at the pace that I expected it to, so why am I wasting my time? Today's Torah reading, the story of Yosef teaches us and empowers us. Beginning from the Torah portion of Azot HaBracha with Yosef's blessing, his tolerance and kindness, and continuing with the Torah portion of Bereshis, which speaks of God's benevolence. When we encounter someone who needs assistance in whatever which way, we must put everything aside and make a difference. Now, this is, this is just another sampling, another taste of how the Rebbe, number one, approached the whole concept of, of Jewish leadership, our responsibility to the Jewish world, but also how the Rebbe wanted anyone that would learn his teachings to incorporate this attitude in their own lives. How do I approach the concept of sharing the inspiration and energy of Torah and of Judaism with my fellow Jews? How do I approach my, my mandate and my, my obligation to introduce more morality and ethics, goodness and kindness to the society around me? You could say I'm going to do it on my own terms. If I see results from my, my efforts, if I see results from, my, from, from the things that I'm doing, okay, I'll be encouraged to do more. But otherwise, forget about it. Learn from Yosef. Yosef was not just good to his family who actually represented the greatest spiritual heights and by providing them with food, he was providing them a platform or, 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 or the ability to, to allow for Torah to flourish. That, that's very important. But on the other hand, he also provided food for the Egyptian priests, for the people that were the complete opposite of, of what he represented. But you know what? Yosef understood that if he wants to change Egypt, if he wants to provide an entirely new spiritual prism of morality and ethics and monotheism for Egypt, you know how he's going to get to Egypt? Through the priests. 
He didn't force the priests to change their ways. He didn't destroy the temples of Egypt. He gave them food. He provided for them as well, and he gave them a tax break. He gave it to them for free. But you're, you're, you're supporting the exact opposite of what you want to accomplish. Have patience. Be tolerant. And where did he learn this from? He learned this from God. God had two human beings living in the Garden of Eden with one mitzvah. And they couldn't even contain themselves. And they had to eat from that tree. And God did not lash out immediately. The consequence of that sin did not play out immediately. God gave them time. God gave them a chance. He provided them with an opportunity. He provided them with an opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to do teshuva. He gave them clothing. Why? Because this is the type of tolerance that we need to have for everyone and anyone. Amit, you have a question? No, thank you. Oh, okay, just... no problem. You raised your hand. Yeah, but it was... Okay, no problem. Mistake. Technology does that sometimes. Yeah. So, so here, here we see, we, we see the, 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 what's expected of us in this realm. And that's truly how we're able to make a difference. There's a, there's a beautiful story that I, I say it all the time, but uh, it can never be said too much because the more we think about the story and try to incorporate the lesson of the story, we're going to see how it's going to change the way we, we view people and the way we view our efforts in trying to have um, a, a positive influence on these people. The famous story that once the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the, of the Chabad movement, he was trying to raise money, raise funds for, uh, there was someone that was in prison, debtor's prison. And so he came to a town and uh, went to the, the rabbi of the community and they called the president of the community. They sat down and they wrote up a list of everyone in town. In those days, the leaders of the town, they knew what everyone made. They knew what type, what their financial abilities were. And so they made a list that they're going to ask every family to give a certain amount of money, not an equal amount. You know, the richer have to give more and those are poorer give less. So they write up this whole list and they're going, to, so it's the three of them. The Alter Rebbe was the visiting rabbi, the local rabbi, and the president of the community. They're going from house to house uh, to make this appeal. And as they're walking down the road, the Alter Rebbe notices that there's this big mansion with a big mezuzah on the door and they're skipping it. They're walking past it. So he asked the rabbi, he asked one of the two of them, he says, what's with this house? Apparently this person is a man of means. Why are we not going to fundraise from him? So he said, ah, this guy is the miser of the shtetl. He's the miser of the village. He's not going to give you a penny. So the Alter Rebbe said, that's impossible. A Jew wants to give. He said, Rebbe, you're wasting your time. He says, it's okay. He walks up to the front door, knocks on the door. The butler comes to the front door. And the Alter Rebbe says, I would like to speak to the owner of the house. So uh, the owner comes to the door. And he was surprised to see the local rabbi and uh, the president and another venerable sage there. He says, what do I owe this, uh, this uh, honorable visit? So the Alter Rebbe explained to him the story of this Jew that's in debtor's prison, etc. And he's telling him the entire sob, sob story. And the man, you know, he's standing over there and he becomes very distraught about the story. He says, Rabbi, that's so terrible. I really want to help out. And he puts his hand in his pocket and he pulls out a green kopeck. An old Kopech that was already green. And he offers it to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, please take my donation uh, for, for this uh, very important cause. Now, the local rabbi, the president, they wanted to burst. I mean, such a chutzpah. The, the audacity. But the Alter Rebbe took the penny with a big smile and just said, thank you so much. May God bless you. And he gave him many, many blessings. And he wrote out a receipt for him and he gave it to him. And they left. Now the rabbi was like, Rabbi, how, how could you allow him to, to disrespect you in such a manner? The rabbi said, Shh, don't, don't say anything. It's fine. As they're walking down the road, the man, the miser, he calls them back and says, Rabbi, come back here. So they come back and he says, you know, I was thinking about it. I realized I have to do more for you. He gives the rabbi five rubles. The Rebbe takes the five rubles with a big smile and says, thank you so much for your generous donation. And he gives him even more blessings. And, uh, and he writes out another receipt for him and he gives it to him. By now, you know, the local rabbi, the president, are like, oh, okay, something's going on. Anyway, they're walking away. And finally, the man calls them back. He says, come back here. He says, Rabbi, how much money do you need? He says, 500 rubles. He goes into his, uh, his office, whatever it was. He comes out with 500 rubles and he gives it to the Rebbe. And he says, here, 
I want to have the entire mitzvah to myself. Here's the money that you need. So finally, the, lo- the local rabbi couldn't contain himself. He says, explain to me what's going on over here. We've, for the past I don't know, d- dozens of years, we've been coming to you and asking you for money. And you've always been offering this green coat bank. And, and you know, you disrespected any of the venerable sages that came to, to uh, fundraise for even more important uh, causes. What happened here? So he says, I'll tell you the story. I was a young man. I was walking to Shul, walking to the synagogue early in the morning, and a poor man walked up to me and asked me for, for, for a donation. I put my hand in my pocket. The only thing I had was a copic. So I gave it to him. The man took the copic. He threw it back in my face, and he spat on the floor, and he said, you have no dignity. Yeah, what's your self-worth? This is what you give. So I became very insulted. And at that point, I made a decision that I will not give another penny to charity until someone will accept this copic from me with a smile. And you're the first one that took it with a smile. Now let's analyze the story for a moment. First of all, I mean, the guy's a lowlife. <laughs> Just because the guy disrespected you, therefore you're not going to give charity. But you know what? The Alter Rebbe, when he heard that this guy only give, doesn't give any money, the first thing that came to Alter Rebbe's mind was, that's impossible. It's impossible that he doesn't want to give. Apparently something happened. Apparently, you know, stuff happens and people, you know, they go on a certain journey in life as a result of certain experiences. We have to meet them on their terms. We have to have compassion and tolerance for them to realize that their journey is not like my journey. I cannot judge them until I've walked a mile in their shoes, how the saying goes, right? I have no idea. But I know that everyone wants to give. And when this person gave the Alter Rebbe the green copic, the Alter Rebbe was not playing a trick on him. The Alter Rebbe was projecting the truth of what this Kolpec really represented. It's tzedakah. Does it make a difference if he's giving a million dollars or a penny? Well, obviously, the bottom line, a million dollars is going to accomplish much more. But it's the same mitzvah tzedakah. So the Alter Rebbe, when he smiled at him and he thanked him and he, whatever, it was real. It was genuine. Because here you have a Jew giving money for a cause. And this is what broke that person. This is what revealed that inner giver. This is what revealed the true neshama, the soul of this person, that he wants to give, and he wants to give a lot, and he wants to be helpful, and he wants to be generous. However, the altar I've had to meet him on his terms. And the same thing here. Yosef could have told the priests of, of Egypt, you want food? Give up all of this stuff, all of this marishkeit, and all of, these, all of this uh, silliness of the idols of Egypt. That's not what Yosef did. Yosef said, I'm going to meet you on your terms. You're still, you're still into that silly stuff. You still need to eat, right? So I'm going to provide you. I'll provide you for it. Now, again, that, that doesn't mean that it is justified to go ahead and start supporting every silly cause in the world. That's not the point. Yosef had, um, had a, an obligation to provide for them, but he could have chosen not to give it to them uh, in a way that it was tax-free, etc. You know, he, he could have played with them in many different ways. But Yosef chose to, to work with the clergy of Egypt in a, whole different, in, in, a, in a manner that was extremely tolerant. Why? Because God chose to deal with Adam in that way as well. He could have told Adam, you just opened up a Pandora's box, you just caused everything to fall apart, the world will never be the same, Ashanda, what a shame, and give him a slap and throw him out. Bounce him out of the Garden of Eden. He didn't do that. He tolerated him. He gave him an opportunity to do teshuva. He provided clothing for him. He allowed him to stay for 30 hours. Why? Because this is the Jewish ethic of tolerance. And so when we come in contact with someone who displays a, a, a very different mindset, a very different view of the world, and, and you know, causes us to become very annoyed at them, the proper way of dealing with it is to be tolerant. And even if this person comes across as um, problematic with issues, etc. So again, you don't have to argue with them. You don't have to engage them on their terms. However, you have to always be open and ready to reach out in kindness and in compassion and say, you know what? You, you claim not to be interested. You claim not to want to have a connection with Judaism, but know that Judaism is always here for you.
Know that whenever you're going to want to put on film, and I will be the happiest guy to help you put on film. When you're going to want to coach your kitchen, I'll be there to help you out. I'm going to always be ready, no matter all the trouble that you've caused, so to speak, no matter all of the things that you've, that you've said and that you've done and that you've influenced others, we will always be there in order to ensure that when you're ready, you are going to want to come back. And you know what? I will not just be there for when you're ready. I'm going to do everything that I can to influence you and bring to your awareness that truly this is what you want. Uh, there's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, handwritten hand note that they provide over here in source number six. So you see on the bottom, there's like a, there's a picture of the, of the Rebbe's actual handwriting. So we'll just read it in, in its translation. Uh, it was a letter to a certain David Hillman. So uh, here, here's the Rebbe's words. In your letter, you request, you request specific instructions, you know, specific instructions of how to live life. <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't asking, you know, how should, I, how should I behave as a Jew? He was trying to say, you know, how, what's, what should my general approach to life be? Our sages have given us a general directive in their commentary on the verse in Isaiah 57, which states, share your bread with the hungry and take the wretched poor into your home. When you see them naked, clothe them. So obviously this means on a practical level, if someone doesn't have clothing, provide them clothing, doesn't have food, provide them for that, give them a roof over their heads. The sages explain that this refers to a person who is naked of mitzvot, hungry for Torah, and who lacks the shelter of prayer. Someone who does not have mitzvot, provide them a mitzvah. Someone is hungry for Torah, teach them Torah. Someone doesn't know how to pray, doesn't, doesn't know where to find the shul, doesn't understand and appreciate the, the importance of a shul, provide it for them. And then in parentheses, obviously, if he doesn't realize that he is lacking, he is even poorer. So what is our obligation in life? Always be aware of those that may be lacking, that which we take for granted. And provide it for them. And don't just provide it for them when they ask for it. Try to teach them that that's what they want. As the famous Steve Jobs said, I will tell the world what they want. Right? Before he came out with the, with the, with the iPod, no one thought of these things. No one thought about having more than 100 songs on something that you can hold in your palm. And Steve Jobs whet our appetite to demand that in our palm we should have access to the entire world. Why? Because he says, I will tell them what they should want. The same thing in Judaism. The standard is we have to be there not only to provide what people ask for it, but to try to teach and inspire others to what they truly want when it comes to their spiritual life. And the verse concludes, do not ignore your own flesh either. You have to also take care of yourself. Try to think into your own needs, your own spiritual needs, and try to weigh your own appetite to desire more and to provide for those needs in a greater manner. This is a lesson of a lifetime in one verse. And what is it in a nutshell? Even when someone represents the complete opposite spectrum of everything that we believe, we must be there for them, tolerant of them, embrace them, and provide them the tools that they need in order to understand and appreciate what they truly want. And we learned that all from Yosef. We learned it from God. Any questions? Yes, Sam. Uh, you're, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. There we go. Sam, you're Am I muted now? I hear you. Yes. Oh, okay, sorry. So I just had uh, something I thought about when you were talking about this thing with uh, Adam and Chava and stuff. Um, yeah, the other time that I saw God's tolerance was like after Moshe, after you know, at Mount Sinai, when they sinned with the golden calf and he didn't destroy them. So it wasn't immediate, you know, fire and brimstone then either. But you mentioned that, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen, that they, they, that, if, that they was trying to provide an opportunity for repentance and, and who knows what would happen then. So it just, I don't know, maybe you can enlighten me or tell me, but I just was thinking, so after this thing happened in Gan Eden, and he says, where are you? And, and he gives them the opportunity to explain. They, there was really no repentance. There wasn't, they didn't do anything. Nope. 
They didn't. So you just thought about me. I think it was especially when you when you said some people think that even when Mashiach comes, that Aram is going to be the the you know the, obviously the, 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 the only human being that's ever really created by God. So it just made me think about it. There, right. there wasn't any repentance. That, that it's, it's a very interesting thing, and even you see how the Rebbe kind of catches himself. On the one hand, the Rebbe paints a picture which, you know, <laughs> is the root of all sin. At the end of the day, you know, let, let's, let's remember who we're talking about. It doesn't take away from the lesson. It doesn't take away from the context. Uh, just it's equally important to remember that we can't just talk about Adam in a disparaging manner. Yeah. It was just the thought that I had while you were talking. I thought, you know, they, they didn't take the offering. They didn't, uh, they didn't repent. They, they took it, they did what they, what God said was going to happen. They, they accepted the consequences, but there wasn't anything like, like Abraham did or like Moshe did for the people or did for themselves, you know, like, oh, God, please give us a second chance. Um, they they so, tried to so shift the, the blame. Truth, the, truth, the truth is that, in other words, the Torah does not record a specific teshuva, but Adam did ultimately do teshuva, but apparently he didn't do it on time. He didn't do it, you know, when, when God said, Ayeka, where are you? He was starting the conversation. That was a very specific window of time where if he would have done Shuvah then, if he would have owned up to right. his sin, you know, perhaps things would have been different. Uh, it would have not been just a, a pitfall. It would have been an opportunity, a stepping stone to greater heights. It didn't happen that way, which also shows you that even after he didn't use out that window of opportunity for Teshuvah, God still allowed him to stay in the Garden of Eden. He didn't right. get him out of the house right away. Right. They allowed him to enjoy Shabbos. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you. Cool. Thank you. Any other questions? Comments? Well, thank you very much. All righty. Thank you, Rabbi. For us to learn. Yep. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully. All righty. Take care. Thank you. Bye. -bye.